Hi, everyone, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Expert Answers from Inside Scientific. Inside Scientific is the online environment for life science webinars, virtual events, interviews, and educational content that helps you do your best work. Today, we are joined by Jim George Kupalos. Jim is the Chief Scientific Officer of Sunshine Heart. He is here to discuss the parameters of ventricular pressure volume catheter calibration. Let's jump in. Can you further explain the difference between the alpha stroke volume correction and the flow probe stroke volume correction? So this is going back to those slides, I think, where you're talking about a snapshot versus, you know, a transient stroke volume or, or time varying stroke volume calibration. Specifically, how are these different and how, how importantly, how should researchers choose one over the other? So just maybe your thoughts on that. Sure. The alpha or the stroke volume, they're essentially doing the same thing. If you're going to derive your alpha from a cuvette, Again, the cuvette will give you the same value each time, the only variability being the resistivity of the solution and the placement of the catheter. The stroke volume has two aspects to it. One is at steady state using whatever reference measure you need, and one is doing during a, a preload uh, occlusion. Theoretically, those values, steady state and during the preload occlusion, should be the same. The conductance signal is inherently nonlinear, but if you're, there is a linear range, so if you're within that range, then you're fine by applying the steady state. If you're outside that range, which you will now see by your IBC occlusion, then you may want to apply a different correction factor based on that, lim based on that regression that you've done over beat by beat. But that's really the key difference is you're able to identify during the IBC occlusion the range where your conductance catheter is linear and you can't apply a spot measurement. Perfect. Okay, very good. And continuing on the topic of calibration, what is your standard approach to choosing how to calibrate? What do you do most often? Why and when have you chosen something different? Um, as I indicated, when, when we do these studies, if we're going to calibrate, then we do both parallel conductance and stroke volume calibrations for every animal. In cases, there have been cases where, as I indicated, relative changes were sufficient, like in some of the devices that we're testing where we can turn the device on and off. We just, we, we bypass any calibrations and just use the relative changes. So typically, uh, we either calibrate fully or we just express it as relative changes. Okay. So working at the extremes is in your experience you tend to do. Okay, great. Folks, I'm also going to bring Brandon Boucher online to our Q&A. He is uh, head of the research business unit at 80 Instruments. Hi, Brandon. Do we have you with us? You do. Excellent. Thanks for being with us. This question, I think you'd like to chime in on. Specifically, Sarah Rolden has asked, in a multi-segment catheter with 10 electrodes in which she needs to block some of the electrodes since they don't all fit inside the ventricle, should she block mm -hmm. the first electrodes in the catheter or the last electrodes of the catheter or... Both, or what's the prescribed best practice here for when you're dealing with a multi-segment catheter? Yeah, it's a good question. Essentially, the way you want to go about this is, is to look at first the way the catheter approaches the ventricle. And so typically, with a multi-segment catheter, you're going to be going in through the aorta. And what that means is the most distal electrodes will be at the base of the ventricle. The ones proximal to you will be presumably outside the ventricle in this case. Mm -hmm. um, so what you want to do is if some of those are outside the ventricle, you'll turn those electrodes off, moving the excitation electrodes closer to the ventricular space and ensuring the ones that are actually inside the ventricle and doing the sensing. So the answer to the question essentially is the electrodes that are outside the ventricle are the ones that are turned off and, and the excitation moved closer to the space. Perfect. If I can just add something to that, 
we've actually run into the same issue. And one of the advantages, you can also plot, you can look at each of the segments, the individual segments. You want to keep as many segments as, as you can active because you're trying to sample from, from the entire volume. But if you look at the segment that's outside the ventricle, its volume will be going in the opposite direction of the ones inside the ventricle. So when the, ones, when the ventricle is ejecting, you'll see all the segments inside the volume decreasing. The segment outside, its volume will be going up, and then you can, realize, you can identify which one to turn off. That's a good tip. That's very good. And actually, I was going to say another question that has come in from Thomas Sharp. So it's on the same note. So he's working in a pig ischemia reperfusion model, and the heart dilates over time. So he says, when using a catheter that has multiple conductance segments, should I use the same number of segments as I use in baseline? Or and I assume here he's suggesting with healthy animals, or include new and or include new segments which may not have been included in the initial measurement. So as the disease progresses and you know the ventricle enlarges, or maybe the converse in a different model would be it gets smaller. How should one adjust? I guess their strategy as to what what they're recording. You know with the segments. Again, I would try to use as many segments as you can and be consistent using those segments over time. Mm -hmm. I think also the advantage of the conductance catheter, particularly in ischemic models where there's a portion of the wall that may be affected, it may be insightful to look at regional segmental uh, volumes as well and plot pressure volume loops using that segment alone and track that over time, a consistent segment. I think that's also very informative. Yes. And actually, an extension of this, I'm curious. So uh, is it also correct that, I mean, each segment is set up as, or at least can be set up as an independent trace in your data acquisition software? Is it fair to say if segment one, for instance, was, if it proved to be maybe a bit noisy or just you didn't want it included in your final volume calibration, that's something post hoc someone could decide. So is it fair to say record also as many and then look at the active segments you'd like to use for analysis post hoc? So that you don't turn something off and not have anything recorded from it, I guess is what I'm saying? From my experience, yes. And not only turn something off, but you can also record the set all four or all segments. And you may see information in there that you wouldn't see by just adding the segments uh, to get a composite signal. Right, right. And Brandon, obviously Power Lab can be set up in that fashion that I described, right? Where you have your, all your independent signals, you have a total, but you can also effectively post hoc adjust what the total volume represents, what segments basically make it up. Yeah, you can certainly report all from all the segments and gather the information. Even if you make a decision ahead of time about how many segments you're going to be using, you can. But the, what you should also consider is that each of those will affect the way your calibration works in multi-segment catheter. So right. if you're going to plan in advance to have, you know, a certain number being used during one portion of the study, and perhaps you have to expand that. Keep in mind that each of those have a volume associated with them. You want to make sure you retain that information so you can't apply it later. Okay, great. Let's switch gears to talking about the saline injection. Jim, you did mention there is some potential risk or effect of doing too many injections. Sarah has asked, should a saline injection be done at the beginning of an experiment or at the end? And then also, how might this change if someone is making measurements from the LV versus the right ventricle? I mean, is the technique the same, or may, I guess is the strategy that you presented, does it change slightly if someone's doing RV PV loops? It should be identical. It's a little more challenging on the right side because of uh, mm -hmm. the shape of the loops, but the theoretical concept is the same. In terms of at the beginning or the end, I typically try to do one as close to as possible as when I was making my critical measurements. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That typically was more closer to the end of the study. I think in general, it would be at the end of the study. Is that correct, Brandon? 
Generally, yes. There are only a couple of circumstances where I've seen people do it at the beginning out of necessity. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. and, but that's really, again, the theme of, of this and thinking ahead of time about, you know, how things are affected by your approach and, and what you're actually doing your study. And, and if you need to change that, you can. But typically, yes, we do it. Okay, perfect. How about your experience with the addition of heparin to a blood solution when you're doing a QVAC calibration? Is this a suggested best practice? And if people are using heparin, you know, would it, should they expect that this changes their calibration, so to speak? Does that have any effect on blood resistivity and the resulting QVAC cal that, sure. that comes out? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if Jim has any thoughts on this too, but essentially, the answer is yes. We do recommend that you use heparin when you do the QVAC calibration. And that's just to prevent clotting. And what we essentially recommend is that you minimize the amount you use. Um, typically, what we'll say, what we'll coach people through is to, you know, coat the syringe you're going to be capturing the blood with. Um, mm -hmm. And so you have a very small volume of heparin being added to the blood pool. Um, and find out how that works for you. Because a piece of this is, you know, to try and do this quickly so that the blood doesn't lose any temperature and doesn't have the clotting associated. So you're trying to, you know, stem the time um, that it takes by adding a little bit of heparin. And at those small volumes, we haven't seen that effect. But yeah, do keep in mind that heparin, at larger volumes will affect the resistivity of the blood. To mitigate that, we recommend using a minimal amount and, and make sure you do it quickly so you have a balance in both situations there. Very good. Yeah, Jim? I, I agree. And if you're using a reference standard, if you're measuring flow anyways, then this will not, it will, it, the, the heparin won't, won't affect that, that alpha calibration once you've set your short volume from the, from the flow plug. Okay. Very good. All right. Question from Mark Kearns. So he, often obtains very clean looking hypertonic saline calibration. So good for you, Mark. So much like the ones presented, however, he finds a big challenge in selecting specific waveforms for the parallel volume adjustment. So basically working within software, the variability depending on which waveforms you select, so this is his experience, can be quite large. Jim, how do you approach looking at a saline wash and, and making those selections so it's consistent and in your eyes accurate? from animal to animal? You should only select loops where you can identify where the saline is beginning. And then again, you don't need that many. You may not want to include, let's say you've got 10 loops and you may just need, you know, the first five or six of, of the saline wash period. But it's important to exclude the steady state loops and just start where you see the first deflection mm -hmm. um, in that wavelength. And you can do, again, you can look at if you want to verify, you can look at multiple, those couple techniques that we discussed in assessing which data range to pick so that, you know, they all converge down to one, one consistent value. Right. And that paper is referenced. So folks afterwards, um, you know, when you're looking for this content on insightscientific.com, you'll have a link within the slide deck to get to that paper that Jim noted in the middle of the presentation. Very good. Okay, let's talk about if someone is looking for, if their goal is to determine small differences between mice in cardiac function, and they want to look, they, they like stroke volume is an important measure for them, what would you recommend as far as calibration approach, which is going to be best serving to them when they're looking at small differences in mice? And again, um, stroke volume is a key parameter that they want to report. Sure. I would say for me, why I would consider the gold standard is a transit time flow probe. Okay. Transit time flow probe, thus giving you the ability to look into some of the time varying calibrations that you also talked about, Jim, and applying like a full absolute volume calibration for their PV data. Transit time will give you a stroke volume. You may not need the actual, if you want the 
absolute volumes of the ventricle, you would need a hypertonic saline. But the transit time alone mm -hmm. will give you the cardiac output and, and, and the absolute stroke volumes. Mm -hmm. I think in this case, they certainly want the PV loops to as an independent. So transit time stroke volume and then use that throughout the procedure, but also use it as a calibration reference mm -hmm. for your PV loops and do the full absolute volume calibration as you discuss it. Okay, very right. good. John Kingma has asked, do results, uh, pressure volume loop results differ when the approach changes? Two most common approaches, I think, for, and we'll just use the mouse uh, in this situation, is they're talking about an open chest approach, apical stab, or going retrograde through the aortic valve. So in your experience, Jim, or does the approach change the way you maybe look at doing analysis and do you see any just common differences between the way that the data is? That's an excellent question and we struggle with this a lot. Most of the work that we published was with and it was open chest in the sense that we did a limited thoracotomy. We don't have to open the full uh, full sternum mm -hmm. to get the catheter and so a limited thoracotomy near the apex. We found that was the preferred method because we could control where we could place the conductance catheter versus placing it down the carotid and going across the valve. And then we were quite limited where the catheter sat. And part of this is not only the calibrations, but for some of the disease models, it's important to get a relatively nice looking PV loop that you can actually calibrate and then subsequently use that for analysis. If the loop is twisted on itself or if it's sheared to one direction, you know, where's your systolic volume if it's tilting sideways? Is it at the top left or is it at the bottom, the bottom left? Mm -hmm. So... Trying to get a loop that's as box shape uh, as you can so you can apply your calibrations and your analysis, I think is important. And so we preferentially use the apical approach with a, a minimal thoracotomy between the ribs. Okay, very good. All right, another question, moving on to load-independent measurements. Jim, in your experience, what are your kind of best practices and tips for fitting and systolic pressure volume relationship. On the last slide, you talked about how there can be extreme variability and people should also consider whether they're going to be doing linear or curvilinear fits. So again, is there, are there you know, rules of thumb that, that you prescribe to, to ensure that the measurement is, again, accurate in your eyes and also consistent from animal to animal? We, again, a very good question. We, we took two approaches to this. We defined if we were going to do just a linear fit, we defined a linear portion, let's say we, between 80 and 100 or 110, and applied that range to all the animals. It can be challenging in heart failure mice where you don't, that range may not apply, but in, some, in most cases, you typically can get a reasonable range that you can use across all animals and then fit your relationship to that. The other, if you want to use the more curvilinear logarithmic approach. I think that paper I mentioned by Burkhoff, Mursky, and Suga described their techniques that are published where you can actually fit parabolic or logarithmic fits. Mm -hmm. And then you wouldn't so much extract one number, but you would use that entire regression and use that entire relationship now to compare from animal to animal. And that's fairly robust. And it also, you can also transform your data. You can do a linear transformation, almost like a stress-strain analysis, and linearize now offline the logarithmic curve and apply, and those relations are very linear. And you can apply fits to that linear regression. Okay. Very good. That's a great answer. I mean, this is something that I think is going to come up and, and there's not really a solid, you know, black and white answer to how to fit curves in, in a lot of PV science. It's it's not a one-stop shop type of thing, but th that feedback is excellent and I think it's very helpful. And I think at that point, when it comes to curve fitting, I mean, it, it's not physiology anymore. It becomes mathematics and, st and, and statistics. So make your statistician or mathematician or engineer your best buddy and, you know, yes. help you figure out some of these fits, you know, ne never hurts. 
Yeah, I was going to actually say that's a good piece of advice. I have heard many say, you know, even if going, following all the best practices of the bench top and all the best practices at the, when working on the data analysis software, and they've kept to a gospel, so to speak, and they're very confident. And now it's, what do I do with these numbers and how do I properly evaluate them statistically? And that often goes, that opens up a whole other, you know, bucket of worms. So it's a whole, it's a whole webinar. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, seek out experts. That's going to help you present your data properly for publication, right? Really good piece of advice. Final question here. We've had a couple people ask about studying multiple species. There was also this note about multi-segment catheters. Brandon, can you just clarify for the audience, how is the molar and AD instrument solution kind of presented so that you can cover uh, a range of animals, you know, either even as small as mouse, but going into medium size and large animals. If someone's trying to set up their lab or make sure that they cover all ends of the spectrum, what do you guys offer for them? Yeah, we have solutions for, for all of the, um, you know, commonly used and, and not commonly used animal models. So we start off with a solution that's really based around the rodent-sized animal and that provides Simply the single segment that you saw in some of the earlier slides, the ability to do that. So a single excitation pair and a single measurement pair. Mm -hmm. um, that's, that's a single segment solution. Come and you can buy the catheters that work with those rodents that are appropriately sized for the animals you're using. Um, and with the same hardware, with some added capability provided with that hardware, you can also get the multi-segment catheters that work with the slightly larger animals, the rabbit-sized area. But you're using the same hardware, just a slightly different software capability to, to expand the capabilities there. And then again, um, same um, recording hardware and a different catheter with multi-segments that's larger for the larger animal models. So really working with similar hardware, a different catheter options, and expanded capability for those multi-segment catheters. Okay, perfect. So just to clarify, effectively one system has the ability to cover all animal ranges uh, between single segment operation and multi-segment. And if someone invested in one or the other, they could upgrade, so to speak. Yeah, it certainly does. And, and you could certainly purchase one system and, and different catheters that'll, that'll approach your different animal species. Mm -hmm. So you can have you know one system on the bench top um, with you know, the, the actual catheters you're interchanging for, for, for different animal models. Um, keeping in mind that, you know, on the back end with our lab chart software and, and what we provide there also has the capability to cover the full range of PBUs, but also really any other work that you, you might be doing in, in, in your lab as well. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Expert Answers and that you will tune into future episodes where researchers just like you answer questions about their work and share science. For the full webinar, please see the link in the description. Don't forget to subscribe and we'll see you next time.